Okay, folks, welcome back. I'm glad to see everybody on this uh, beautiful day. And George has our devotional today, so okay. lead away, sir. Hello, everybody. Uh, my devotional today consists of two parts. First, uh, uh, an event that occurred to me early in my life, and then uh, how that event has popped back up from time to time uh, to shape some of my thinking about faith and the practice of faith. And perhaps it'll stimulate a similar uh, chord in, in your memory, but at least hopefully it'll be interesting. Uh, this uh, event occurred when I was uh, six and seven years old. And during that period, we summered with my grandmother on Cape Cod. My dad was teaching summer school at a university some miles away. My best friend, Nikki McDonald, and I uh, had some great adventures during these summers. Uh, one day when our mothers were too busy to take us to the beach, we were sitting around wondering what we might do, and Nicky came up with a great idea. It involved his church. Uh, his church was Catholic. It was just across the field from where we lived. And so we set out across the field. Actually, the uh, field was owned by the Catholic Church, and the trip across was pretty quick because due to an unfortunate experiment with matches earlier in the summer, Nikki and I burned down half the field. <laughs> uh, we, we, we made it into the church and uh, s- sat down in one of the pews. And after a bit, one of the priests came out. He saw us, seemed to recognize us, and looked a little concerned. <laughs> he came, came up and said, well, what are you all doing here? And we said, well, we understood that God lived in a room behind the altar, and we were waiting for him to come out so we could talk to him. Well, I don't remember what the priest said, but he obviously looked a little relieved when he noted we didn't have matches or anything else. So we sat there for a while, and uh, God didn't come out. So we assumed that he may have, might have left for the day before we arrived at the church or he had something else to do. And so we moved on to our next adventure. Now, I've thought back about this uh, event in my life periodically. Uh, most recently in the study of the New Testament when and we've been, I think, all impressed by, as we always have through our lives, by how simple, direct, uh, the words of Jesus uh, are, and how in most cases his stories are easily understood by uh, a young boy or uh, an old man. And also, um, it, the readings of the uh, past couple of months have reminded me about the constancy of faith. Not only was faith so unbelievably easy for two young boys, but uh, when God didn't come out of the room, uh, we didn't decide there was no God. We just made a logical assumption and moved on with our lives. I've also thought about this story over the past uh, 12 or 15 years that I've been involved in the leadership of a consortium of uh, theological universities and centers in this area that are concerned with 
uh, Christian unity and uh, increasing interfaith dialogue. And it occurred to me that if God had walked out of the room, Nikki and I would have only expected one God, not a Catholic God and a Protestant or and a Protestant God. Additionally, uh, if our playmate Stanley Isaacson had been with us, we still would have expected to see only one God. Lastly, I was thinking about this story this past Christmas when I was reading um, a uh, an article by uh, Father Richard Rohr, great Franciscan uh, theologian. And uh, Father Rohr was commenting on the excitement of the Christmas period when the Christ child comes with this great promise uh, to all of us and really asking nothing. And Father Rohr reminded uh, m- reminded me of, uh, and the other readers, of <clears throat> the fact that the reality is that faith is just simply not enough. There has to be the practice of that faith. And as we've been reading in uh, the various letters from Paul, that involves uh, work and expectations uh, that God has for each of us as in how we practice our faith as well as in our faith itself. So I think back from time to time with... Uh, fondness on those two little boys and the ease that they came by their faith. But I'm also excited, uh, excited with the the understandings that come each uh, year in my life, as they do, I'm sure, in yours, uh, about the elements of how we practice our faith uh, from uh, the renewed lessons and new lessons from the scriptures and and the word of Jesus from uh, the sermons from our pastor and from the exchanges of information among each of us. So that's my devotional and I hope uh, you might find something in it useful uh, for yourselves. Thank you. Thank you. George, I'm just relieved to find that you were once a little boy who did something mischievous, like <laughs> burn a field down. It, it gives me a whole new understanding of you. So, <laughs> that's terrific. So, uh, so let's, let's begin with a prayer. So, Dear God, we do give you thanks for uh, the simplicity of faith and the way it does and can stay with us through all the days of our lives. Um, and the way it is there for us, even when we um, face complexity, when we are tempted to make it complex, and the joy it is to return to its simple basis. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So um, we're going to do Philippians and and Philemon today. Uh, Very short books, but they are, it could be a really long lesson, but I want to try to keep it focus some essence on it. And I do want to remind you that this is, we don't meet for the next two weeks because about, I don't know, probably a third of the people in here are are going to Israel. Uh, We leave next Saturday night about 1130 and and come back uh, Ash Wednesday night, the 26th. We get back uh, around 730 or 8 at night. So we will miss the next two Sundays and we will go 
through um, April 26th with the one Sunday of Easter off, April 12th. So we've made a lot of progress, and I would encourage you over the next two weeks, We, it, it, this is just the luck of the calendar, but we will be taking up Romans uh, for the next two weeks, and Romans is is the densest and, and lengthiest of Paul's letters. So uh, I would follow the study guides and just, you know, we're doing 1 through 8 next week and then 9 through 16 or not next week, next time we meet, and then 9 through 16. So, uh, And the difference, the thing that's different about Romans, it's probably the last letter he wrote, and it, it's, um, it's much more of a theological treatise. You don't see much of the personal connection or relationship. He didn't know, he had not been to the Roman church yet. He didn't found it. Um, and so it's, it's much more systematic and intellectual and can be more abstract than a lot of his other readings. So it's it's not easy going, but it's rich, and we'll uh, do our best to, to work our way through it. So with Philippians, um, I want to spend a little, probably a little more time on Philippians and Philemon just because of the length. But uh, I think what I want us to get out of Philippians, there are, are some, what I would like to point out about it is that it is a church in which Paul has a very good relationship with the people. There's a deep affection and connection between them, even more so than than in other letters. Both of these letters today are considered authentically Pauline in, in that there's nobody that seriously argues that he didn't write them. Um, and, and I think what we see in Philippians are, um, it's good of what George was talking about, it's it's the depth of Paul's faith and his commitment to uh, to that faith um, to, to the point of death. And he's almost, we'll see, he's almost philosophical. Whether I live or whether I die, I am still the Lord's. He's gotten to that point in his life to where uh, he knows that his commitment is, is the most important thing and he's willing to, uh, to face death uh, with that. That also leads to another famous phrase from Philippians, uh, at least famous in, in my circles, and that is that is the the saying, work out your own faith in fear and trembling. And that's a really rich concept, but again, it's it's all part of this sort of individual faith that 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 we see in Paul in this book. Uh, Another major aspect of the book is the Christ hymn in chapter two, um, which which we'll talk about. But it really is a is a terrific enunciation of just the unusual nature of Christ as one who does not claim equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Um, there are also two things that we probably we may not cover uh, today. One is that with Philippians, we get another example of, uh, of how Paul views death or, or what happens to us after our death. And we've talked about that a little bit before, but this, will, this is another example of a place where there, there are just some differences or tensions in Paul's own writing about, about what happens. And then the last thing in Philippians uh, that I think I'll wait and cover with in Romans and that is the meaning of the phrase in Christ we begin to see that phrase in Philippians and we see it a lot in Romans 
as a description of of a person's relationship with Christ. And that that phrase has an has an interesting blessing and burden in American Christianity, and I and I want to talk about that almost autobiographically because I it has meant a lot to me to come to a new understanding of that of that phrase. But I don't think I'll do that today because then we got to get to Philemon. And Philemon is interesting simply because it shows how the challenge of trying to interpret the historical circumstances of a letter, in this instance, relative to the issue of slavery. Because all we've got is Paul's letter, and to try to reconstruct, was he talking about slavery or not, is, is a fundamental question. But secondly, what, what Philemon is, is revealing of, and what's really interesting about it, is the afterlife of Philemon, and particularly how it has functioned in American Christians' understanding of slavery uh, and, and, the, and the history we have in, in this country of, of justifying slavery, or we had in this country of justifying slavery, much of which was based on Philemon. So the afterlife of a book is sometimes as important as as the book itself. So if we can cover all that today, we'll be doing well, okay, or most of that. Uh, so if you'll look down, or, or I've got, um, let's go back to Philippians, and just to, to show the points, a little bit about the background of it, um, and then, then this relationship. Philippi was an important city. It was named after Philip of Macedonia, uh, and it was a Roman military colony. That This is a Roman setting, a Macedonia Uh and so it had a largely Latin population, which would certainly be Gentile, um, and and a lot of legal prerogatives for people who were Roman citizens. Um, according to Acts, Paul's initial preaching there was tumultuous and brief, but the church began to flourish, and Paul became extraordinarily close to this group of people. Uh, most think that Paul is in prison at the time of his writing, at least in the first two chapters. Um, and there's some assumption that, that chapters 3 and chapter 4 represent other letters uh, that, that have been amalgamated in, into one letter. Uh, but it does stand as one of the finest ele- elements in Paul's thought and style, and it's addressed to a community in which he has the deepest respect. Um, we see that, say, in chapter 1, verse 3, um, where he writes, I thank my God every time I remember you constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. I am confident that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. Um, it's right for me to think this way about all of you because you hold me in your heart. Uh, and and down in verse 12, uh, we begin to see these references, uh, a likely reference to him being in prison. I want you to know, beloved, that what has happened to me has actually helped to spread the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, having been made confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, dare to speak the word with greater boldness and without fear. He has this 
faith that that the fact that he's been in prison and that that's known by others is something that's actually advancing uh, the cause of the gospel. And at this point in his life and ministry, he really does have a lot of confidence in in a more humble way, but in a in, in a healthy way that he's doing the right thing. And and uh, and then if you look at 15, starting at verse 15, the next paragraph. Some people proclaim Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. These proclaim Christ out of love, knowing that I have been put here for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish selfish ambition, not sincerely, but intending to increase my suffering and my imprisonment. And of these enemies, this, I mean, are, you know, what he's really saying is all these people that are going around, uh, Competing with him for um, for the gospel and for um, for who will have the followers, he has ultimately come to the point of saying, "What does it matter?" In verse 18, just this: that Christ is proclaimed in every way, whether out of false motives or true, and in that I rejoice. Um, I know that you all don't think ministers are at all competitive. You don't, do you? Not at all. Not at all. Uh, you don't think there's any differences among the way Christianity is presented in American culture? It's all the same, right? So, uh, right. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I'm not sure I could say that, Dwight. <laughs> okay, there's lots of different sort of perspectives these days. Right. I don't, I don't rejoice in all of them myself. No. Uh, so. <laughs> uh, it may be that Paul is, it may be that, uh, it may be that he's talking about People that are closer at hand than than radically different interpretations of Christianity, people that have tried to harm him or that have been former colleagues, and I well, or or just you know how I do think sometimes when you're when you're older and more mature, you don't let things get to you. That's what George said last week. Was it okay? I mean, so I think there's some sense here in which it's you know, even if their motives aren't good, if if they're if they're coming out with the same result, I'm not going to worry about it. I, I, that's the only way I can take that because certainly at other points in his life, he's been very uh, critical of those who've criticized him. And he goes on to talk about being the same mind. Right. And that, that's, that's back to 1 Corinthians. You all may have been snowboarding it even further south when we were on 1 Corinthians. but. Yeah, it is, and this is a, almost a restatement of First Corinthians, where he's got this very diverse church, as we saw, and these very different perspectives. And what he is trying to do is get people united around what he considers to be the essentials, and and they are certainly, certainly the resurrection there, and and this whole concept of putting somebody else's interests first and not your own. We, in fact, it was. Was it last week we did that? No, it was two weeks ago we did that, I guess, the, the second half of First Corinthians, when we talked about the hymn to love and 
idle meat and all that, that lesson. So this is very similar on that. That's where Paul is still thinking that Christ is going to come. Yes, he's always thinking that. Well, yeah, and so I'm thinking, you know, part of that we think, oh, so he talks in a different way. But you know what? He might be thinking in a different way too. Like, well, I sure don't want Christ to find me being stinky in this way. <laughs> That's true. It's all for Christ, you know. We're right. All for it. <laughs> That's true. There, that may be a, yeah, an even better way of saying it. So, uh, but let's let's look at verse starting at verse 19. This is in, all in chapter one. This is one of the, uh, yeah. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. Is verse 18. So starting at verse 19, um, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this. Uh, will re- will result in my deliverance. I'm not sure what the, this is. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in any way. I mean, this is essentially a person who who sees himself as being on death row. I mean, it's it's a it's a sh- there's an element of shame that that would be uh, in the culture about that. But that my speaking. But that by my speaking with all boldness, Christ will be exalted now as always in my body. And this is the key phrase, whether by life or by death. For to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which I prefer. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to part and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you who are my work. Since I am convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that I may share abundantly in your boasting in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. It, it is a, again, it's a beautiful and mature and strong statement of somebody who has been, you know, at this for many years and has sort of gradually risen above some of the controversies and is at the point, I mean, he's imprisoned and he know he may not survive prison, um, as we'll see later in some of the pastoral letters but is able to honestly say, if I live, I get to continue my relationship with you and the joy of watching you grow in the faith and continue my work. And yet if I die, I get to go and be with the Lord, and that's better. I can't choose between the two. It's a beautiful phrase. And and I might, uh, I mean, part you all have heard me talk sometimes or quote the late Fred Craddock as one of the uh, really great, Preachers in in my lifetime and and a and a significant influence on on mainline Protestant preaching for, for the last forty years. And the first time I heard him preach, he preached on this passage, so it's very near to me. But he uh, he's got a famous sermon that was and it's, this is not the sermon I hear, heard him gave, but he's got a famous sermon on. Uh, that's published in one of his books called Doxology. 
you remember this, Mark? Have you read this? Does it ring a bell? Uh, Craddock, Craddock's basic way of preaching what was called inductive reasoning or it's, or it's narrative preaching. And he would tell a story. It was very much like Garrison Keillor with the idea that it would bring with, bring from within you a story or experience that, that, that you would then claim as your own. Uh, and, and the example that's in his book that is really terrific is called doxology. And what he describes, and it's all in the first person, is a Saturday afternoon running chores, mowing the lawn, sweeping off the patio, getting ready for the cookout that night, all the things that suburban families do on Saturday afternoons. And and he said, uh, then they got the call that his brother had had a heart attack in another city six hours away. And so then he goes through everything we did to get ready. You know, we canceled the mail, we canceled the newspaper, we got somebody to water the lawn, we da 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 and then we drove, got in the car and drove six hours so that we could be there, you know, and arrive in the hospital room. But then in the middle of that, he, and then, then throughout this, now I'm getting it wrong. While he's doing this all the way along, he describes a, a pet being with him. You know, the little dog. The little dog followed us here, followed us there. And drive, you know, I'm really messing this up, but driving, you know, driving behind the windshield, you know, all these hours. He said, then we realized the one thing we forgot to do in all this preparation was to bring doxology, bring the pet, bring the focus on God. And that's that was a sermon. It was on this passage. Um, and it just is a, it's a model of how, uh, you know, you are grabbed by this, by following the story, and and I'll never face another da- death without asking, have I brought doxology along? Have I remembered to try to give praise in the midst of this? I mean, that was the point of it. So again, it's it's just a use of 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 a you know if 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 we can. Be on, if those of us who are privileged enough to be conscious on our deathbed, you know, if you can put yourself in that position and say, you know, to live is to be with you, to die is to be with Christ. I'm not sure which is better. I mean, that's a wonderful position to be in, which is really where Paul is at this point, I think, is the way I'm reading this passage. Um, so it's it's pretty well known from from this book. Um, I, I was going to do a, an aside, uh, 
and, and I think I've listed the verses here, although we have looked at them earlier. Um, I think I can I can do it. I'll do it briefly, but you're going to have to get out your Bibles and follow along, okay? Uh, in in the above passage, when when in, in the Philippians passage, uh, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. This is a place where Paul appears to believe that as soon as he dies, he will he will go to heaven. He will see Christ. That that that's an immediate thing. If you look back at First Thessalonians four. Uh, really verse 16 and 17. First Thessalonians is, was the first book we read. I don't have page numbers, but I'll... What is it? 2115. Uh, in 4, starting at, at verse the second half of verse 16. Or, or I'll start with verse 16. This is a place where the point at which we're reunited with Christ seems to be at the second coming. I hope that's not him. <laughs> then we're going to talk about trumpets blowing. That wasn't exactly a trumpet, but it's close. So, so First Thessalonians four sixteen. It's listed there on your sheet, I'm sure. For the Lord Himself with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air so that we will be with the Lord forever. What what that is depicting is that... At the, those who died before the second comings are in a holding pattern. And that when Christ comes, then they go first and then we immediately follow. You know, that's a different that's different than what he said in Philippians. Is asleep, yeah, but that's a and then Yeah. Sleep there in this view, yes. Gail. Uh, I'm sure that is, I would assume, I'm not sure, I would assume that this is some basis for that. But I, I never was Catholic. Some of you were. Was it? The way it was taught to me was purgatory is kind of like the uh, timeout chair. You know, you're not really good enough to go to heaven. You're not really bad enough to go to hell. You're kind of in there. So we used to pray for the soul of the purgatory right. to be released one way or the other. Yeah. Sort of a dangerous limbo, right? Right. I, yeah, I don't know the answer to that. So, but there's definitely there's definitely a temporal a time difference here. So, uh, then if you'll look at First Corinthians 15, which we looked at earlier. Which is the chapter on the resurrection at the very end of that chapter in verse 51. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. 
20, page 2058, 1 Corinthians 15, 21. In this crescendo about the resurrection, Paul says, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. This sounds more like, again, a second coming uh, than it does an individual's death. Uh, but it's certainly a glorious transformation that seems to happen to, uh, to everybody at the same time. And then another reference is, uh, is go to Romans 8. Which is Romans is right after Acts. And, and this we'll, we'll look at next week. It's, it's a little bit different than just death, but, but, but in Romans, Paul has this beautiful concept that, that God is remaking all of creation. 8.23 or 8.22, chapter 8, verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves as individuals who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly while we await for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. I hope that is, and then he goes on about hope. But this, this is another little twist on the end, and that is, that is this concept that, that that the redemption of Christ, the redemption that God brings in Christ is a redemption of all of the created order of which we are just a tiny little part. And it's, uh, you know, I think that's, I think that's very beautiful. I think it's very comforting. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I tell any parent that asks or any adult that asks, yes, your pet is going to be with you in heaven, you know, because it is the remaking of all of nation of, of nature, and that's a theologically sound thing coming from Paul here. That's not just trying to make a, a child feel better. But as Wayne Meek says, if Paul has a clear and consistent picture of what the believer will experience, at least immediately after death, it's not apparent in his letters. I mean, he really does have, you know, some different time frames. But I would stress that that Paul is very good in in saying that this is a mystery. And I think I think we are very good in just acknowledging that uh, that that time is much more a human measurement than it is. A divine creation. So I don't, I don't sweat these details. I mean, my my pastoral sense and my hope is that, you know, because that is that we are, that when we die, we then see see God. That we then are reunited with those who've gone before. And I'm comfortable saying that that's that that's really what I believe. But I think this sort of second coming and this remaking of all of creation helps us realize that. That the redemption that that God is talking about, or that that the Bible is talking about, the redemption in Christ is is the healing of all of creation, and that's where 
we're just this tiny little speck of sand. And there's something comforting about that. There's something humbling and comforting about that. It's not just about our little soul going to heaven or our big soul going to heaven. Carol, you look like you've got a great question about to bubble out. I don't think he had a different expectation for himself than he did for others. I feel like when I read um, Philippians, Philippians, yeah. He may have been liking himself a little bit. He was defending it. Yeah. Making himself a Christ figure more than a disciple. Yeah, he tended to do that at points throughout his life. I think it's a little bit less in Philippians than than in than in other places. I I think. I mean, I would take the question a, a, a different level. I, you know, it's it is a battle. It, it's a it's a question. I think for. I know it's a question for me, and I think it's a question for for a lot of ministers in terms of we, I certainly want to believe that at the end of the day, God figures out a way to, one, include everybody, but two, to, to make this creation, to restore it to the garden, to make all things new and all things right. I mean, that's the kind of hope that I have. So, So I describe myself as a hopeful or wannabe or aspiring universalist. Uh, by that I mean I, I really want to believe that, that God reaches down and figures out a way for everybody to be included in his blessings, okay, out of a sense of the goodness of God. That's not, I mean, there are certainly many, many places in the Bible and many places in the teachings of Jesus that, that you can't really justify that. So I want to acknowledge that. Having said that, I think Paul moves more in that direction than than some of the other biblical writers, just because of this emphasis on on the restoration of creation. That that eventually, you know, there may be an order in which we're brought to God at the final trumpet, but I think he's saying we're all going to get there. That doesn't stop him from being critical of other people along the way. Uh, I don't know if that at all answers your question, but <laughs> so anyway, questions, reaction, comment, what? Well, I guess my response to that is then why bother? Why bother? Well, I hope you're not going through all this to try to earn salvation. <laughs> because if you are, you might as well give up. <laughs> well, and that's a yeah, yeah. That that's a that's a question that that Paul faces. I mean, he's accused of being a libertine, you know. Uh, so, but 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 my response to that again is okay. My response to that is that. Uh, 
that, that the purpose of living our lives is in grateful response to God, not in an attempt to earn uh, God's grace or salvation. Yeah, you're not getting monopoly points, Kira. Okay. All right, that's fine. Well, um, I think Christ led a lot of. There's some sense that Christ had a sense that he was coming again in his lifetime, or that that his return would be soon, even though he said, "No one knows the time or the place." Uh, I don't think Paul was unusual in that belief. So where do we find that? In the, uh, well, at one point Christ says, you know, the, to his disciples, um, the present generation will not pass away before this happens. I think it's maybe Mark 13. It's in some of the apocalyptic passages. There was plenty of. There was there were plenty of times that Christ gave indication that he thought his return would be would be pretty imminent. So Paul's not making that up. So I guess the No. I think that's a really good question. There has always been a disappointment in the 2,000 years of Christian history, particularly among the people that have gone to the mountaintop and felt they've predicted the date and then it doesn't happen. I'm assuming there's some disappointment in that uh, for them. Paul's faith, I think, matured and mellowed the older he got. And I think part of what we're seeing in Philippians is, is a maturing and a mellowing. To be able to say... Whether I live or whether I die, I am the Lord's. This is a really beautiful place to be. And and I you know, I think he's less harsh on his critics. He's saying, you know, if Christ is proclaimed, I don't really care what the motives are. You know, he said that in this letter. So I think those are evidences of no, I don't think he lost his faith. There's no evidence that he lost his faith. But I don't think his faith was tied to the accuracy of a prediction of when Christ was going to come. His faith was bigger than that. It was a trust. It was ultimately a trust in God, the details of which he would let God work out, which is really what I think we ought to be doing. Yeah. There's freedom on God's part, but there's also... I mean, that gives us the freedom to just respond. And this is what I would say to Roger, you know, to respond to grace rather than try to earn it. I mean, Paul's in prison and he's still, you know, sort of motivated by gratitude, by grace, I think. Those are great questions, though. Okay, Wayne. Correct. Oh, yeah.
Yeah, yeah. And, and I think the key thing is to be able to say that's okay. Uh, because that's, I mean, it, it has obviously not happened unless we are all an, under an illusion. <laughs> okay? I mean, we are sort of living proof that it hasn't happened yet as much as proof exists. And so Christianity has had to redefine itself uh, on the fact that Christ didn't return. Yeah. Yeah, I believe that. It, it says, you know, that he was with us in the beginning. Right. I have another sense of what it is to be with Christ. I mean, you know, I feel the grace that I'm with Christ, whether Christ is, I mean, who's to say Christ isn't here? Yeah. That's good. And that will just continue, we presume. As long as you don't mess it up too much. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so, but you know, this, this is good. So let's, let's do one other thing before a break and look at the Christ hymn. Um, and this, this is hard. So, so turn to Philippians 2. Um, this is 6 to 11. And it's often called the Christ hymn or it's, or a kenosis, K-E-N-O-S-I-S, which means self-emptying in Greek. This is a liturgical piece that we use sometimes as an affirmation of faith and you'll just hear it used in, in the Presbyterian church or in, in other churches. Um, and the reason we say it's a hymn is that Paul probably didn't compose it himself. It was probably a liturgical piece at the time that he imported. You know, which is legitimate, just like we, you know, import the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed. So it's Philippians 2, starting at verse 6, or starting at verse 5. Um, and he's writing the Philippians, and the first thing he says is, Let this same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And this relates to that, uh, going back to 1 Corinthians, of have the mind of Christ, be of one mind. You know, don't be factional. Uh, so, so he's asking them to have this mind that was in Christ Jesus. And then, then this is the hymn part. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited or grasped or sought after. That word can be translated different ways. But emptied himself, taking the form of a slave... Being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, because of this uh, self-emptying, God has also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Again, cosmological. And every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Um, 
again, this is just another example of it's it's a liturgical example after the the life and death of Jesus of the way he totally redefines what one would expect from us from a messiah from a liberator from a savior from a king instead of seeking to be equal to god and grasping after power it is it is totally emptying himself in, in humility and and becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. And that is, that's one of the central mysteries of the Christian faith. Um, is um, it is how God can be God and be totally humble. You know, to how God can be God and have been and have died on the cross. And that's even with the exaltation of the resurrection that comes afterwards. That's not just a whoops, we made a mistake. We've got to correct that. It, it's that this self-emptying of God in the person of Christ is um, is central to Christianity and is very very hard to understand because it because it so much goes against um, our understanding, you know, of what power would be. Um, and and I, and I think it's not unusual that at the end of his life, this is something that Paul is, is really coming even deeper in touch with and why it's such a, a good hymn. So we tend to use this as an affirmation of faith on Sundays where the theme has been more of self-giving or more of the sacrifice of Christ or more of the cross because it's it's or more of humility you know because that's really that's really what this is and as i say in the note sort of the you know one of the one of the ways christians appropriate this is is do we seek to imitate it or do we seek to live in its power and what I would say living in its power is like is is as you've you know as we've all seen the stories of I think ancestry.com and this concern with genealogy and, and rediscovering the past of our families has been helpful in this regard is that it seems that so many people look at their family history and will find somebody in there who who sacrificed and from whom we benefit. And, and our response to that tends to be a marvel, a gratitude at, at what, at how what they did has given us life. And, and that is, that is a way that Christians can respond to the idea that their Lord essentially gave his life up in sacrifice. Um, and that's different than imitating it. It's living in its power rather than saying, oh, this is the model I have to follow. But there are many Christians who say, this is the model I have to follow. And I don't want to denigrate that either. Um, but the model would be, uh, I mean, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's beginning of, of the cost of discipleship, if, you know, when Christ calls a man in that, those days, uh, he bids him come and die. That's that's the imitation model. 
that you're not really being a Christian unless you are, or that the, that the model of being a Christian is a willingness to die, becoming a missionary, going to a place where your own life is endangered. And that's a powerful image. The other model is living in the wake of, in the power of people that have gone before us and, and sacrificed and therefore being grateful and responsive to what they've done, being influenced by it. So. Reaction, comment. Larry? Yes, um, yes. Is, is he saying, say that again. Well, his, Bonhoeffer's was, has been very influential in, in American Christianity, and he, his early book, *The Cost of Discipleship*, begins with the words, "When Christ calls a person, He bids that person come and die. He bids that person to be willing to give His life up." So then, what he's really saying is what you said in the, earlier in the beginning about Paul saying, in, "We are in Christ." I, I think Bonhoeffer is saying, or the way that statement is, is used, is that the truest way to be a Christian is to be willing to be martyred. But he was. And he was, yes, and he, and he was. was. Yes, yes. So that his personal, right. his, his biography makes that very clear. Right. But he wrote this before he was martyred, <laughs> to be clear, too. Yeah. But he knew. Yeah, but he knew it. Correct. He was saying he was willing to be, yeah. And that that was the concept here. Yeah, yeah. But but I think, in what I guess what I'm trying to say is that 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 statement of his holds up as a model that that the definition of being a Christian is is imitating Christ and to the point of becoming a martyr. And that's a little bit different than living in the power of those who have become martyrs. Wasn't he executed, Larry? Just yeah. Oh, yeah. Before Hitler. Hitler I mean, before Hitler's suicide. Like 1945. Right. He was in jail. What he endured. I mean, he lived that. Just reprehensible. Or just appalling. Right. In, in prison. Right. As, as a martyr to faith. Right. And, and I think that what you, I thought that's what you were saying, Paul was saying, and then later again now in this part, it's really, we're, we give up ourselves to Christ. Yes. Really, I mean, yes. I'm not saying yes. I'm very or even have a glimmer, but I do believe that that is what Do. I think that's yes. what they're telling us. Yes. Yeah, I agree with that. That that's what they're telling us. And and that Paul did that. Correct. 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 <coughs> yeah, I don't think we're saying that a different thing. I'm just trying to this is getting a little wacky now, but um, 
a literal a literal imitation of Christ would would be I have to go to the cross like he did. If I'm going to be a Christian, I have to go to the cross. Or being willing to. Yeah, or that that's your concept and focus. That's, yes, yeah. It's a complete other side than the way we tend to live, yes, which is why it's such a mystery, yeah. And all I'm really trying to say, I mean, the reason I harp, maybe harp on this is that um, I, I have serious doubts that I would be willing to do that myself. Uh, for whatever reason. <laughs> um, what is the leap of faith? Yeah. Facing some terrible thing and all you have to hold on to is the redeeming touch, your redeeming yeah. touch in that moment. In that moment. And it's total trust in God in that moment and and better stretched out over your whole life. But but the Ancestry.com illustration is I know that I am grateful for what Bonhoeffer did and what people that have, I don't I don't have relatives that have stories like that because I don't I've never been on ancestry.com but I'm you know I'm grateful for the benefit that that all of us have had from people who have made that kind of sacrifice and 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 that's part of the way that that I try to be a Christian is to be grateful for those who've done things that I'm not sure I've got the guts guts to do at the end of the day why don't we take a break? <laughs> I think we need cookies. <laughs> but George has got his hand up, and George always has something good to say, so we'll recognize George. Just very quickly, when I was a uh, soldier, you talked a lot about uh, sacrifice. Yes. And someone said to me one time that in comparison to a physical sacrifice, and the sacrifice you were referring to with respect to Bonhoeffer and others, was made, wouldn't it be worse, on the other hand, to be wounded in the soul and bleed to an everlasting death? Wow. I, someone wrote that. I don't know who it was. But it was a pretty profound view from yeah. the other side. Yeah. And what I'm, what I'm taking that to mean is, wouldn't it be worse to live with the guilt of, of not having given your all? Yeah. I think that's pretty profound too. So, so, 
All right, break time, folks. Break time. I'm lost in all this. Okay, let's come back and pick back up. Yeah, see, I think, yeah, right. <laughs> all right. So, I feel mired down in the abstraction that we've just been talking about, so let's go directly to Philemon, because that's very concrete. I need to be a concrete thinker for the rest rest of the class today. Um and I'm really going to be following the, the handout, but, but we'll, we'll read the entire letter. So you're going to have the experience of having an entire book of the Bible read to you. All right. So the background, this, this is the only, it's not the, it's the only authentic Pauline letter to an individual. Nobody doubts that Paul wrote this. Um, the letters to Timothy are the same way. But, but people do have doubts whether he wrote them, and I don't, that doesn't matter to me a whole lot. But this is clearly a letter to an individual versus a church. The I and you in Greek are both singular. He's not saying you plural in this. He's not saying y'all. He's saying you, um, Philemon. But yet it's still intended to be read to the house church. So let's listen to it, and then we're, we're going to talk about reconstructing what he's talking about and just how it's been used. And I, w- I also want you to listen to it through the ears of, of how is Paul as a communicator? What is, he trying to, what is he trying to get Philemon to do? So Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When I remember you in my prayers, I always thank my God because I hear of your love for all the saints and your faith towards the Lord Jesus. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective when you receive all the good that we may do for Christ. I have indeed received much joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, my brother. For this reason... I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty. Yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. And I, Paul, do this as an old man and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I am appealing to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I have become during my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you. There's a wordplay here because anisimus means useful. It's a, it's a in the Greek. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, that is, my own heart, back to you. 
I wanted to keep him with me so that he might be of service to me in your place during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. Perhaps this is the reason that he was separated from you for a while, so that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but as more than a slave, a beloved brother. Especially to me, but now much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he's wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. I say nothing about your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, let me have this benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. One thing more, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping through your prayers to be restored to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So, you've just heard a whole book of the Bible. Congratulations, you've read a whole book of the Bible here in the last five minutes. Um, it's not as it's not as intimidating as you think. Um, so most commentators assume that Paul simply wants Philemon to receive Onesimus without a severe penalty, and some believe that Paul wanted Onesimus to be set free. A few believe that Paul wanted Onesimus to serve as a co-evangelist with him. There was a bishop Onesimus of Ephesus to whom Ignatius wrote 40 to 50 years later, but there's no real evidence that this is the same Onesimus in this letter. But there is this sort of legend or strand in early church history that Onesimus was set free and he actually became a bishop, you know, after after all this. Krista, you've been abandoned, haven't you? Just temporarily, okay. All right, all right. Another handy set to go home. So, so, um, and most of this is from Wayne Meeks, who's a good good historian, or was a really good historian. Uh, in this context, we do know that the Roman laws governing fugitive slaves were strict, and Paul observes in this letter all of the legal necessities. Anyone assisting a fugitive slave was liable for damage, and Paul offers to pay the damages. Paul gives Philemon his personal note for these damages. Paul must have had a trust fund because he just says, charge it to my account. And <laughs> most prisoners don't have trust funds, I don't think, but, you know. Um, according to the law, fugitives had to be returned to their owners, and Paul is sending Onesimus back. And that is... Um, that is the, a sort of standard interpretation that this is a book, that, that Onesimus is in fact a slave and Philemon is, is an owner. Uh, there has been in recent years a, 
a contesting of that assumption. Um, and actually, the New Interpreter Study Bible, which is something that is often, it's the, it's the latest incantation of a series of commentaries that is in our library and, and people in mainline churches often use. But I realized that, uh, well, the, the, interpret, the study Bible that you have, yeah, reflects this. I'm sorry. The introduction to the study Bible gives the other viewpoint. And the other viewpoint is that this isn't about slavery at all. Uh, arguments against viewing Onesimus as Philemon's runaway slave, which are outlined in the introduction there, are these. Nowhere does the letter suggest that Onesimus belongs to Philemon. That language is not used. Nowhere does Paul refer to Philemon as a lord or master. Um, in 16a, I'm not sure what this comment means, but in, in verse 16a, it says Paul says, "Receive him no more as a slave, but as but more than a slave." The key word is as, not slave. And I'm not really sure what that means, what that's saying uh, here. But it's this author of the introduction is using that as, a, as an example of why it's not necessarily about slavery. There's no indication of flight in this letter, and there's no reason given for Onesimus' departure. Um, I think maybe the one of the more interesting points of, of this article is that in, in all of the history of Christian interpretation that, that exists or that has been found to exist, the first interpreters to suggest that this is a fugitive slave situation was John Chrysostom in the 4th century, which would have been you know, 300 years after this. But he presented this interpretation because he was a great admirer of Paul and he wanted to defend Christianity and Paul from the charge that they were helping slaves escape from their masters. And that in the process, the reputation of Christianity within the Roman Empire was being damaged. Uh, so Chrysostom is saying this is an example of Paul. Yes, he sent a fugitive slave back. And yes, he was asking Philemon to accept the fugitive uh, slave back. Because Paul, as we've seen in other letters, always wanted to keep the peace with the Roman authorities. Because essentially, and we'll really see it a lot in the pastoral level letters, um, they were a besieged minority and he did not want them disturbing the Romans. Because if they could live peacefully under Roman rule, they would at least have sort of the freedom to exercise their faith. And, and there's a fair amount of that going on in Paul. So, uh, and, and part of it is to uh, part of it is to have a good reputation with, with the Romans. Yeah, plus Paul is also a Roman Paul's also a Roman citizen. Yeah. Uh, so that's where that interpretation would come from. Now, um, I, I'll have to say to you that I, uh, when I first started studying Scripture seriously or studying it for sermons or being taught it in seminaries, 
and taught it in seminary. The first interpretation you hear is usually, has always been for me really deepening and rich. And even as I've then maybe 20 years later heard something different, I think, oh, well, that's really interesting and that's really good. But I sort of default back to my original interpretation. So I find this book to be a lot more interesting Excuse me if Paul is, if it is a slave situation. And uh, from a, what I see in it, and it's not necessarily all that uh, complimentary of Paul, I see him as either being a diplomat and genuinely trying to get Philemon to do the right thing of his own accord. Or I see Paul using a lot of passive-aggressive language and trying to shame, you know, trying to shame Philemon into doing this. Uh, and, and you can almost read it to show how crazy some of us who read the Bible a lot get. I mean, you can almost read it as... Uh, not being sarcastic, but being uh, passive-aggressive. I, Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ. Um, To Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, uh, I always thank God because I hear of your love for all the saints. You see what I'm saying? It's more laying it on thick and then... Yeah. He knows it's going to be read in public. What's going on? Yeah. So if I come to Roger and I say, Roger, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty. I better do it. (laughs) But I hope you'll do it of your own accord. (laughs) I mean, come on. You see that? I mean, you can read you can read them as kind of funny. I'm appealing to you for my child, Onesimus. Uh, whose father I have become in my imprisonment. I mean, it's just he's constantly saying, I am a prisoner like like he is. So, uh, well, that's an argument is that they are or that they're brothers, brothers in the faith. Yeah. So the, the, the introduction to that book says this is a family. This is a family estrangement. And Paul's just trying to get them to reconcile. That it doesn't have anything to do with slaves. Uh, you what? <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's, it's probably vice versa. So, uh, yes. I, I guess the younger brother, yeah. And then he went, I guess he went to Paul, right? Yes, so and became became a Christian under Paul's tutelage, yeah. And so, and this was already a Christian? Yes, likely. Yeah, it sounds like it. So if you'll look at the very last few sentences under... I've got history of interpretation of the letter. I think that's on your sheet. 
Skip the part about slavery. We'll come back to that. But it says some Christian leaders insisted on an alternative interpretation. This is in the 19th century, but it still holds. They say the letter does not take a position on slavery, that the writer, Paul, uses a vocabulary of love and family to describe the relationship between Onesimus and Philemon, that this brother love is is a familial language, if not an actual blood relationship, that Paul takes a diplomatic approach to Philemon with concern for reconciliation of relationships for the sake of the ministry in which they are engaged together, and that Paul is not urging forgiveness necessarily if there's been some breach but is offering to pay himself for the financial damage done to Philemon so that justice can be served and reconciliation can occur so that the ministry can go forward. I mean that in in this interpretation, you know, Paul is trying to get these two to settle a difference. And he's willing to pay whatever damage Anismus has done to Philemon just so the relationships can be healed enough for the ministry of the church to keep going forward and that it doesn't have anything to do with slavery. I'm not arguing for that. I'm just trying to say that's the way some people read it. Yes, yeah. Yeah. And, and it would fit Paul's constant concern for people in the church to be united, I want to say, not just get along, but to be united for the sake of the ministry and the gospel going forward. I mean, that would fit very much. I think, yeah. Yes. Well. If, if Philemon is a slave owner, he's got every right for Onesimus to come back. Because, you know, the loss of a slave is a significant economic loss. We don't know if it's a brother or a slave. No. And which we don't. And what it shows is how when you, I mean, part of what it shows is how when you just have a letter, the black, you know, the black print on white page, it's often hard to to really know with a certainty what the circumstances are behind it. See, I mean, that's part of what this exercise is showing. Even though for most of Christian history, this has been assumed to be a master-slave relationship in most of Christian interpretation. But it... Yeah, but we've had 1,600 years since then <laughs> of that being the dominant thing. So that's, I mean, I'm only showing you that that's, that's, one, that's one thing about, I mean, I, I realize, I feel like I'm all over the map today, but I'm, I'm showing you that you can interpret this letter as Paul being primarily motivated on keeping the church together and moving it forward is one thing. Another thing is that he can be, it might be, that he is genuinely hopeful that Onesimus will set, I mean that Philemon will set Onesimus free. 
even though Paul knows that there's no legal case for doing that. He's, he is hoping that out of the goodness of his heart and his own commitment to the faith, that Philemon will set Onesimus free and treat him as an equal, let him become a brother in the faith. Um, it, those are probably the two major interpretations are two major possibilities within this. And, and a third strand that we've talked about here is just how how Paul as a leader is communicating to Onesimus, I mean to Philemon, I always get the names mixed up, but how Paul as a, as a sort of senior seasoned Christian religious leader is trying to communicate to Philemon, Paul's sense that for the that the right thing for Philemon to do is to you know is to set Philemon free or to receive him back without punishment. And you know is that a funny passive aggressive approach? Is it a diplomatic approach? Uh, it's certainly not an authoritarian approach. He certainly doesn't come and say, you know, I'm ordering you to do this. He's he and. And if it's if 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 the best of Paul in this letter is to say, I mean it's really it's really a neat phrase. I'm bold and this is verse eight. I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty. Yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. And I, Paul, do this as an old man now, prisoner of Christ Jesus. Um, And then down in 14, I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. I mean, if if that is the most genuine and sincere Paul coming through in this letter, it's really... I think a, a neat stance for a religious person to take seeking another person to do what is right because they have come to believe because they're not being forced to. You, do you follow me on that? You see what I'm saying? Okay. I mean, uh, so that's another little gem out of the, yeah, Catherine. That's interesting. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it's counter. I mean, we Paul has such a bad image, you know, for a lot of different reasons. And and he certainly has an he certainly has a fiery, impulsive, you know, negative, maybe even authoritarian aspect of his personality. But but these are also places where he seems to be truly believing in in human freedom and human conscience, and that it's important for people, you know, to make a 
to make up their own mind, which as a Presbyterian, I love that, that in Paul. This is my constant thing to try to soften our, soften the edges of Paul. But he was a fiery personality and very inconsistent. Depends on what side of the bed he woke up on some days. Sure. That's what Paul would hope. Yeah. 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 And so what I just want to hold before you is the number of religious leaders that don't do that and the number of religious traditions that say this is what you have to do and don't leave it up to human choice. Or don't it's not a seed planting, it's a it's an order from on high. And Paul is clearly not doing that, I think. The question is, is he? Well, I think he's clearly not doing. Yeah. What's he what? I said, in what manner is he doing? Doing the other end. Correct. Correct. Now, the, 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 other, the other interesting thing to cover about this letter is how it has been used relative to slavery in history. Um what we saw in John Christostom in the in the fourth century was that that he wanted the Romans to believe that Paul was trying to faithfully follow their laws and send this fugitive slave back in order that Christianity would still be in good with the Romans, would not make trouble. Um, in In most of Christian history, this letter has been cited as sort of a legal brief in support of slavery. And, you know, we have to realize that slavery was only, I mean, was certainly a widespread assumption of being fine until the last couple of hundred years. I mean, in many, many cultures. In the early 19th century, American pro-slavery advocates referred to this as the Pauline Mandate as a biblical sanction for slavery because here was a situation where there was a slave. The slave ran away. Paul sent the slave back. Therefore, Paul is not opposing the institution of slavery. Well, <laughs> consistency is the hobnob of mediocre minds. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Right. No. Galatians. Galatians. Yeah. I know. But but part of what part of what it's important to understand is that in American history, 
the southern economy was so dependent upon slavery. And two of the most um, thoughtful, articulate, and well-developed defenders of slavery were Presbyterian ministers. One named Thornwell in in, uh, South Carolina, and there's all these... In the Presbyterian Church, there's all these Thornwell children's homes in South Carolina. That's him. Yeah, you know those. And Palmer, Benjamin Palmer, who was the minister at First Presbyterian in New Orleans. And they were, they were religious versions of, you know, Henry Clay and, I mean, of the, and they really did develop biblical and theological justifications for Southern slavery. Uh, they were my predecessors. I told you I didn't have much Ancestry.com, but, I mean, that whole thing came down in the Southern Presbyterian Church, and it's one of the reasons that uh, that our denomination was so slow, took so long to reunite, was was because of that heritage. Yeah. And I went to a seminar about the historical background of why the church split. And one of the things they had there was a poster or like a kind of something printed, and it had biblical verses in support of slavery and then against slavery. And it created what is a very, we know, is a false dichotomy. And it looked like, oh, well, they seem about equal, and you just have to kind of make your choice. And it was really like insidious. It is, yeah. Yeah. And it reminds, Right. Humanity of uh, LGBT elders, and uh, and it reminded me of that very yeah. much. Like you, know, you just line up the scriptures, and then you kind of have to pick. Yeah. But anyway. It, it's very much no. I mean, it's very much a part of of the part of the Presbyterian Church I came out of, and and growing up as a child, uh, you know, I knew people. I mean, I certainly knew people who were great Presbyterian elders and, and probably some ministers that still believed in segregation. And, I mean, my my childhood minister was um, Dr. Henry Edward Russell, whose brother was Richard Russell, who was the senator from Georgia, who was one of the leading voices for segregation in the South. And he was, a, he was you know, I've been reading these LBJ biographies and... Uh, he was also the senator that was able to tame the MacArthur, uh, McCarthy, but but the uh, the general oh, oh, MacArthur. MacArthur that when that when that. Uh, popular support for MacArthur broke out in California. LBJ sent or or it wasn't LBJ, it was Truman sent Richard Russell, who was able to just sort of calm the waters and let MacArthur go dis- gently into the night. So it's a, and there's a, I mean, I've got books on my shelf, which I haven't necessarily read, but uh, I've read one of them. But but the history of, of the defense of segregation in the Southern Presbyterian Church took another hundred years to overturn. And it really wasn't overturned until the till the mid '60s, and because uh, I was, I remember being a child in uh, 
in this large Presbyterian church when when there was a congregational meeting as to whether or not to overturn the bylaws that said black people cannot attend this church and and it failed I mean it eventually was changed but it's a really it's a sort of a famous case out of Memphis that has origins in the PCA I mean it's crazy but it is I mean that's how significant the pro-slavery argument was linked with Christianity in in antebellum south and Philemon was a big part of that book because it said look there's a mandate for it. You got to send a slave back. See, because Paul sent the slave back. I mean, that was a big part of the argument. I mean, that, that's all I'm trying to say. <laughs> so, and it, uh, and that has a long history in Christianity. That argument. So it's a pretty important book, you know, in that regard. So, and how we use Scripture is very, very important. It's very, very important. How can you be what? A good, like a slave, good, battle, and at the same time be everyone be of God. Well, we think that. How can you be chattel and everyone be of God? I mean, I, uh, you know, I re- I happened to read this week because I thought I was going to use it for the sermon, but I didn't. The City on a Hill sermon by John Winthrop, which is a lovely passage about the need for for brotherhood and sisterhood and equality in the new world but the whole first part of it is God has made people of different classes the rich to be rich and the poor to be poor to show the diversity of the human creature and make us dependent upon each other I mean that's the first few paragraphs and then you get into city on a hill the shining I mean the beautiful part of it it's just I mean, it's deeply embedded in, in human belief that people aren't equal. I mean, you had whole medieval Catholicism built up on peasants and serfs, and, you know, you didn't get out of your lane, and your lane was horizontal. It wasn't vertical. I, um, I watched a documentary about a guy called One Child Nation about the policy of the communist China. Yeah. They need more people. Yeah. Right. Well, that's good that you have that reaction. Well, I think, I think, um, her question is, how can you be of God and say every everyone is worth the same thing and accept this? You're not saying that everyone is worth the same thing if you accept this. So, and and the idea of equality uh, took a long time for human history to develop. I think it's fair to say, and and often what you see in the Bible is seeds of that. I mean, in Christ there's neither male nor female, Greek nor Jew, slave nor free. Paul said that, too, see, or, you know, the whole creation story of it's just in, in many ways, uh, male and female, he made them in the image of God, he made them. I mean, those are, those are great texts, but, 
but the human ability to imbibe those texts and believe them and structure society on them has been limited. And, you know, there's a lot to celebrate in our growth, but there's, but we have blinders too. <laughs> believe me. <laughs> okay. Of the world, yeah. I mean, you know, believing in in, in God or, or or Jesus or as I would believe they are the same, but they're it's you're still human, yes, and we're still you know stupid, and <laughs> I, would, you know, I would like to see a council get together again and decide what books are in the Bible, and I'd like to consider the ones that were left out. And, and you'd like to be on that council, right? Right. <laughs> so, so anyway, I didn't I didn't mean for this class to go this way. It's gone, but you know it's gone this way. So y'all been you know y'all been terrific. I, but I do think it shows how important. Uh, I mean, a couple. Of, the the way I deal with it, I think it shows how important it is to read the whole Bible and interpret it. I mean, and just understand the interpretation because it can be. It has been used in so many different ways. I think it can also keep us humble about the way we're using it. I mean, we're not any different than three thousand years ago when this text first started to be interpreted, or two thousand. You know, two thousand years ago, if it's Christianity. So we need to be humble in our interpretations as well. I also think it shows sin as it permeates throughout human history and society, and that the only that the only answer to that is is the redemption from God in Christ. I believe that that's that's what we have to be. So the Bible is a great book of wisdom that often is like a mirror held up to ourselves. It really reveals, you know, human character at its best and at its worst, and human history at its best and at its worst. Uh, so it's not just something to put on a Hallmark card, you know. It's just not. I mean, that's it's fine to put a verse on a Hallmark card. People say that all the time. Yeah. I mean, that's a freedom we have, I believe, is to say. Absolutely. I mean, you can recognize Paul and Jesus as historic figures, but, I mean, Paul was really flawed. He should not be. Paul was very flawed. Paul was very flawed. He should not be a justification any longer. Well, I think what, I mean, you're saying you shouldn't be a justification for anything. I, I think there also is is terrific good that Paul did. And and in that way he's not any different than the rest of us. So but I can understand where you're coming from too. Correct. 
this idea of slavery, um, it still it still creates inequity today. Correct. And I have to say that part of what I'm thinking, I went on to NPR.org today online, and um, there's a uh, a controversy in Germany about a plaque that is on a church, a church. It is, I've never even seen anything that is so vilely anti-Semitic as this. I had never even seen anything so... Gross, yeah, yeah. And, um, And I have this, like, visceral reaction that... Um, you know, some judge said, oh, no, it has to stay there. It has to stay there. It, it's on the wall of the, uh, of the church. And, you know, this, you, you can't read something like this and not think of what is going on in the south of the United States today with these statues. Yes. And the, these, and I just think, I'm not saying that we shouldn't grapple with it. I do think we should grapple with it, but I think we also have to recognize that for those people who are most directly impacted, like, you know, the effect of slavery still creates inequity for some people today, and it's a, it's, it's good to turn away from it, but it's also important to recognize that in one aspect it is alive and well. Okay. Sorry. That's no, that's okay. That's all right. Uh, yes, Kurt. I see, your, I see your point. I think one of the things that that's dangerous is if we if we sanitize all these things, they will be forgotten. You forget history, you will repeat it. I really believe that. Well, I agree like Auschwitz. With you. I, Auschwitz is a, is a, is a holy ground, in my opinion. I've been there and I think everybody needs to see it. We need to understand how badly humans can treat each other. So I'm afraid that if we go too far, and I, I know it hurt, I know what you saw, I know what you saw, disturbed. there's lots of things I see too that I feel the same way, but I look at it as, I want to feel that discomfort and I want others to feel that discomfort. But I think learn. that there's a difference between venerating Yeah, venerating this, yeah. And, you know, so move them all into a museum, and let's not forget, but I think, I just think we have to be clear that we no longer want to dedicate um, roads and statues and buildings to these people. We want them to have their place in our history. That's all. But I agree with you. You all will have, it'll be great when you go to Israel. (laughs) When you go to the Holocaust Museum there. Because it, it was eye-opening to me to see. I think I know the, I think I know the picture you're talking about. Because it's just to see something anti-Semitic. Yeah, yeah. So, so I'll, you know, I and I would say to Carol, these are, I mean, these are great discussions. I appreciate them. I'm, I apologize a little bit for this one being so all over the map, but that's sometimes that just happens, and that's okay. Um, but it. Uh, I just want to continue to say that, and I go back to Phyllis Tribble's phrase, that the Bible is very important as a mirror of 
of human history and human life. And, and, and what's even more important is the moral decision we make of is this saying I am to do what I'm reading about or is this saying in the name of God, in the name of Christ, I am to oppose it or to change it. And, and that's why, I mean, almost every story, almost every incident, almost every text um, needs to be read partially through those lenses. Uh, and, and that's why it never ends. That's why you take this class over and over and over and over and over. Okay? That's why it never ends. That's why it never ends. And that's also why it's communal. Because we learn from listening to each other. Okay? So, I'm going to close with a prayer and send everybody, and my prayer is going to be, God help us. <laughs> but it is. It is always asking for God's presence and help as we wrestle with these very, very important things that appear in this book, which is really a library. Amen. See you in two weeks, three weeks, something like that. We will. Yeah, you've been there.